Welcome to Parents at Work, a podcast for people who want to succeed and thrive at work while they have kids. This podcast is sponsored by the Spiegel Law Firm, a firm that empowers people who have been wrongfully fired or afraid that they might be. I am Tom Spiegel. If you would like a copy of my book, You're Pregnant, You're Fired, you can email me at tom at spiegellaw.com. Joining me today is my co-host, Lori Mihalik-Levin, an attorney and founder of the online platform Mindful Return. Lori, I'll turn it over to you to tell us more about Mindful Return and to introduce our guest today. Wonderful, Tom. Thanks so much, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Mindful Return is a program for new parents that helps them make the transition back to work after parental leave, and it's one that employers offer to their employees to help them navigate that transition as well. Today, we're so thrilled to have with us two fantastic dads in social responsibility. We've got Justin Steele and Brian Breckenridge, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about each of them. But as you probably know, each of the episodes of this podcast is really geared toward working parents in a particular sector or industry. And this month, we've chosen to focus on social impact or corporate social responsibility. We've already spoken with some awesome working moms in this space, and today is our episode specifically focused on working dads. So Justin Steele is a director at Google where he leads Google's philanthropic grant making in the United States, Canada, and Latin America. He lives in Oakland with his wife and their three daughters who are 10, 8, and 6 years old. Brian Breckenridge is a senior director and executive director at Box.org. Throughout Brian's 14 and 2-year-old's lives, he's built nonprofit-enabling embedded social enterprises from scratch at Salesforce.com, LinkedIn, and Box. His programs have built digital, financial, and general capacity for tens of thousands of nonprofits and transformed thousands of Silicon Valley leaders. Justin and Brian, thank you so much for joining us today from what I understand is sunny California while Tom and I are sitting in raining Washington, D.C. So welcome. (laughs) Sorry to rub it in. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to be here. All good. So Justin, let's kick it off with you. First, I'd like you to ask you to tell us your own personal working parent story. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I we have three daughters, uh, Sienna, Jalen, and Zadie, who are 10, 8, and 6. We actually had Sienna when my wife and I were both in graduate school. So I was pursuing a master in business and policy at Harvard, and my wife was getting a master of divinity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. My wife is an ordained pastor. So we were both in graduate school in the middle of a three-year program when we had our oldest, which was kind of a blessing in that we had a good amount of flexibility in our schedule, but also a little crazy in that we were completely broken heads resources. And we actually had Sienna when I was on my first summer internship in graduate school. And so, you know, as a summer intern, you're not supposed to take any vacation. You're supposed to be there all the time. So I didn't really have an opportunity to take advantage of some of the traditional supports that corporate America sort of offers that would be at my job at Google now. We then had uh, Jalen and Zadie when we were living in Washington, D.C. So I was working for a nonprofit called Year Up, and I was a deputy director of our Washington, D.C. site and had the two kids there and moved out to the Bay Area. We live in Oakland. I work in San Francisco at Google's office for Google.org. We moved when the kids were one, three, and five. It's probably one of the sort of most stressful periods of my entire life, trying to move the entire family to the West Coast. (laughs) With a one, three, and five-year-old, it put lots of stress on every aspect of our family life. But yeah, we were thriving now. My kids are settled in. We're in fifth grade, third grade, first grade. They're all in Oakland public schools. My wife, as I mentioned, is a full time pastor and the co-director of a 
I have a community center in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco that uh, does outreach to homeless people and people in the San Francisco jails. So we're doing our best to balance it and make it work. Wow, thanks, Justin. Good to know that you're familiar with the D.C. area. And I am also bowing in admiration at a move with a one, three, five-year-old. We moved last year 0.6 miles with a six and an eight-year-old, and I thought <laughs> I was about to die. So I can't even imagine the cross-country thing. We almost didn't survive. It was, yeah, touch and go there for a little while. I can <laughs> totally believe that. We made it through. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Brian, turning it over to you, can you tell us a little bit about your own personal working parent journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I was fortunate to grow up back in the Midwest in Kansas with a bunch of siblings. There were some split ups and some remarriages that created like a Brady Bunch type uh, scenario for me growing up. It meant that I netted great new siblings that was able to, to grow up with from age seven or eight all the way through to date with the remarriages of both my mom and my dad. So always been in an environment where everybody was making trade-offs and, and getting creative and making it work. When I made my way over to the West Coast after undergrad, was pretty fortunate then to get in a partnership which created Maya, my now freshman in high school. And so we're chasing her through high school volleyball and high school soccer. And uh, even as a freshman, uh, the, the considerations that she's making on like this long-term planning type thing, like, is she going to go to college and what areas is she focusing in? So that's quite a journey with another partner that I'm really excited to navigate life with now. Amanda, we... Uh, Two and a half years ago, we're blessed with uh, with baby Grayson, who's now two and a half and is just a riot. He's now his second week into going to a preschool where he is a couple of hours on his own and he's really thriving. And so it's been an incredible journey to be both in the corporate social responsibility space, both as an individual operator, but also as, a, as somebody that likes to thought lead across the industry and stay pretty busy and travel around a good bit to be both a single dad at, at certain phases in this journey making that all work and having my baby girl for the majority of the time during those phases of life. And now just really making it work with a tremendous partner here in the suburbs of San Francisco, still keeping a pretty harried pace, but thanks to a bunch of apps and a bunch of friends and a bunch of family and so on, we're making the parenting journey of both a little tiny person and uh, an emerging young woman uh, possible. And frankly, it's typically our top priority, you know, our marriage and our own well-being and health. But these kids are, we know, our most important you know, project for our lives. So it, it's just amazing to watch them blossom and experience things for the first time and then watch my baby grow up. So pretty cool. Yeah, a lot of really deep wells of experience to draw on here that I'm sure our listeners will be very uh, thrilled to hear from you about. So. You know, we've talked a little bit about your own personal stories. If you can zoom out, and I'm going to stick with you for just a minute, Brian, if you can zoom out and think about, generally speaking, if it is possible to generalize, what's it like to be a working dad in the social impact field these days? You know, I don't know that there's a lot that, you know, the pronouns that I identify with or kids or no kids or there's not too much, at least my experience is there's not too much impact kind of on what your family scenario and your partnership scenario and all that sort of thing lends per se to CSR. I think if you've been in a position where you've been underrepresented or you've been in a position where you've been on the receiving end of community services and things of that nature, you're probably bringing even more, you know, fundamental heart and calling to your work because you've been there and experienced it firsthand or had experience at, you know, empirical experience with the types of things that our nonprofit partners are powering. And so again, being a parent in the CSR field per se, or being a married person, I don't think has a huge impact, but I would say for sure that having kids has 
continue to keep my furnace burning really hot and really bright to make organizations, especially that serve youth, successful. And I see the types of things that I want for my daughter and I want the, everybody to have a shot at some of the things that my privilege has allowed and the luck, frankly, in my career and all that sort of thing has allowed for me. So I think it stokes my fire to create universal access to programs and a chance to succeed and have a meaningful life and meaningful career and all that stuff for people. But I would also just kind of close out my quick thought here by saying, it's been awesome to do a lot of volunteering with my daughter. And I can't wait to travel with her in, you know, some call it less developed or less sort of commercialized parts of the world you know, in two summers, we're going to spend some time in India. And so even if it's just kind of being down where Justin's wife is deploying her programs, you know, in parts of San Francisco that are resourced and, you know, working on the food line in Mo's kitchen with my teenager and things like that. And it's making certain that she kind of remains balanced and understands the path that a lot of people have that maybe she even doesn't and be aware of those things has really continued to keep my conviction and my sort of proximity to the work really keen and really sharp. So those are some quick thoughts that come to mind for me. I know that CSR is likely employs more folks that identify with she or her pronouns. Um, and that's never, I've never really even noticed that, to be honest with you. But I don't think the parenting thing necessarily impacts anything except for my inspiration to really be undying in my quest to make nonprofits powerful and successful. Mm, that's beautiful. Justin, how about you? What are your reflections on the same question? Yeah, I think I generally agree with Brian that I don't know that my experience is fundamentally different than most other Google employees, but there are some really special moments, I think, with my kids' ability to understand and directly relate to the work that I'm doing. For example, we were watching the Grammys together a couple of weeks ago, and Google's running a Black History Month campaign during the advertisements on the Grammys, and I worked on a project with the NAACP to support a $3 million grant to their AXO program, which I participated in when I was in high school. And it's this amazing Olympics kind of for talented Black youth throughout the country who are competing in 30 different categories, everything from STEM to performing arts to culinary, all these different things. And we're really trying to support the brilliance of Black kids across the country in support of this broader campaign around Black History Month. And to be able to have that advertisement come on during the Grammys you know, and be like, yo, kids, this is daddy. This is, that I did this, like I made this commercial and we're doing this grant is really cool. And then even being able to be closer to home, you know, I mentioned all of my kids are in Oakland public schools and I've had the privilege of being able to do some philanthropic work with the African-American Male Achievement Initiative and some other work that happens in Oakland public schools. And I was gracious, they were gracious enough to recognize me at one of the annual gatherings of all of the black families in Oakland Unified. So I was able to bring my oldest daughter to that. And first of all, it was just cool because we knew a lot of the people that were there and there was community, but then also I think for my daughter to be able to see the example of me, you know, doing work in her schools and on behalf of kids who are sort of underrepresented and facing lots of different challenges. So there's some really fun and cool moments that you get to share when you do this work. And I think it's relatable for my kids, but, you know, I think in general, there's a lot of challenges of trying to, you know, to raise a family and work in a professional job in corporate America. I think if you like zoom out on that topic more broadly and that, you know, I actually was having coffee with an old colleague of mine this morning and we've both been married for 15 years and, you know, he and his wife have chosen not to kids yet. And I was kind of comparing, you know, starting a family to sort of starting a startup, you know, and I've never, I've always made the decision not to, I've had a lot of friends who have wanted me to 
you know, get into the startup scene, whether that's social enterprise or, or otherwise. And I've always, I know it demands everything of you. You know, when you're a founder, when you start something up, like it'll take everything that you're willing to give it. And it could make or break you in various aspects. But if you build the startup and it's successful, it's one of the most beautiful things, right? Like what a privilege to be a part of it, to see it grow and grow into something. And I was telling them, you know, today it's, you know, fam- starting a family feels like a similar thing where, it demands all of you and it'll take every single thing that you're willing to give to it and invest in it. And, you know, for some people, like that's worth it. You know, if you really feel like you've got your feet on solid ground, you've got the support system around you and you feel like you could be successful at it, it'll be one of the most beautiful things you've ever done. But I totally respect people who make the decision to say, you know, I'm not sure I'm in a good position to be successful in that thing and that endeavor. And it's going to take every little piece of me. And this might not be the season of life for me to, to jump into it. But it definitely feels like that when you're trying to balance, you know, a career in a, in a high sort of pressure, fast paced corporate job and trying to also invest in family. And both of those things will take whatever you're willing to give to it. Right. And so obviously there's only so much to give and you're invested in two things that will take as much as you're willing to put in. Uh, making those decisions where to make those trade-offs is always really challenging. Yeah, it'll take everything and then some. Yeah, I definitely hear that. I also really just loved your reflections on being able to weave into your work your children's experiences and probably vice versa. You know, we're talking about the Google ad, et cetera. And I've been a big advocate and fan of making sure you're doing the storytelling, you know, with your kids at night about what happened during your day and then bringing them to the office and telling your, you know, sort of interweaving those two stories, which I think helps it all fit together a little bit more seamlessly. I now want to turn it over to Tom, who I know has some questions about maybe your earlier years as working parents. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting insight there. And uh, Justin, I wish I could say I had been that rational and I decided to start a family. I had no idea what I mean. I think I thought I had <laughs> know what I was getting into, but in hindsight, I had no idea. And, and, and strangely, I seemed to forget between each kid, you know, I'd have a, because we have four and then like I'd, we'd have a baby and I'd be like, wow, this is harder than I remembered. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, but I am, you know, very interested to hear both of you talking about how, you know, the impact that your work has on your children and them, you know, being able to see what you do. And, you know, Lori, it's great. It's to your point, I do a, very, a poor job of it. Like my daughter, literally before I came here, is like, she's seven, just turned seven. She's our youngest. She's like, daddy, what do you do at work? And I was a little stumped. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, I'm going to go talk to some people and I might type. And I realized as I was talking to her, I'm like, I'm making this sound extremely boring. <laughs> I have a much better, bigger vision to this, but I'm not doing a good job communicating it to you. And for you guys, for the, your children to be able to see that mm-hmm. and the impact that it has on their lives, I'm sure is tremendous. But the question I have, and, and I'll start with you, Justin, since you're on, on the line with me, and you can speak to this at any point during your, I know you and Brian, you know, at any point during your professional careers, but what supports did you find particularly helpful in your work as you became a working parent? Yeah, I mean, I think it a lot for me came down to the individual relationship I had with my manager and the flexibility my manager was willing to give to really invest in my family. And I think everything from the ability to work from home on sick days, you know, obviously the public school calendars are really wonky and there's a lot of like teacher professional development days. And, you know, literally last week the, the kids were off on Friday and my wife was scrambling on Wednesday, like, wait a minute, the kids aren't in school on Friday? Like, oh my 
my gosh, what are we going to, you know, what are we, we going to do? I wish like, they told us. <laughs> right? I'm sure it was in an email somewhere. Oh, but right, like, exactly. Right. We, sure we, did. You know, or some piece of paper that was supposed to be in the kids' backpacks that didn't quite make it home. So, yes. you know, so I think the flex, you know, particularly being able to protect my nights and weekends, I have not been able to do that consistently through my entire kids' sort of 10 years that we've had kids. But I think especially in the last few years, you know, this is partly Google culture, but also I think just the tremendous support of, of my manager, Jacqueline Fuller, who's the global president of Google.org in sort of supporting me and protecting nights and weekends. And of course, there's an occasional, you know, project that gets really hot where, you know, I've got to do put some time in on nights and weekends. But I think that's probably been the biggest support for me is, you know, I drop the kids off at school at 730 I actually ride my bike to the ferry and ferry over from Oakland to San Francisco every day. And sometimes that ferry ride's an opportunity for me to sort of relax my mind and maybe do a little bit of mindfulness. But a lot of times I will break that laptop out and start around eight o'clock and I will go hard till six. And But at six o'clock, the laptop's off. I'm on my bike. I get home and I'm fully present for my kids. And I really try to pop it open on weekends. And I think that's honestly been, you know, the biggest support is just having that support from my manager so that because there's that constant tension of like you know how do you balance it off and being and being those supports so google has some really incredible institutional things too that have been really fun take your kids to work day is always a highlight i mean my kids literally ask about it all year long because it's like coming to disneyland for a day for them so there's a, there's a lot of things that i think the company does that make this a place feel special and really help me to support my kids and being engaged in it but i think the individual support of my manager has been the most important thing for me yeah, we hear that quite a bit. That's so important, you know, regardless of what the company's policies are. I mean, you really have to have somebody in your chain of command who understands and is sympathetic with, you know, being able to prioritize family when you need to do that. And let me ask you, just because you're in California and obviously with Google, I know California has a state paid leave law. Does Google, do they have paid family leave? They do. It's very generous. I'm oftentimes jealous. And it's actually because I joined after I had the three kids. And, you know, it's definitely made it a little bit more tempting to say, should we have number four? Because the, <laughs> the, they give you some baby bonding bucks. They give paternity leave at a pretty generous rate and maternity leave even longer than that. So yeah, there's really, really generous leave policies. And I'd say like you also don't feel, at least on, on my side of the organization, a stigma or like you're trading off something too significant into taking that leave either it really is seen as something that is healthy it's good you're encouraged to take it a lot of people will end up even extending their time and taking more through medical leave or through you know cashing in vacation hours and things like that so google's really generous on the leave policy i really admire that about the company yeah that's impressive it really sounds like you know the gold standard and yeah you timed that poorly justin i, mean, I did time it poorly i mean you know from literally like being back my internship the day after my <laughs> first right. daughter was born to being able to take several months of paternity leave it's a, a night and day but I think that's the right thing right I don't begrudge anybody that they have that opportunity because I definitely underestimated I remember thinking when we had our first and we were in graduate school like I mean how distracting can a baby be like we can totally do our work and we'll just set the baby in the crib or let her run around the floor and she naps half the day anyway right we'll just it'll be fine we can do all our work and I, you had I, no I, I had no idea like <laughs> being with a 
single baby for multiple hours is all consuming. I mean, it just, and any break that you get, you're sleeping. <laughs> so oh, right. I really underestimated that. I think it's important for companies to be giving those supports for sure. Yeah. I remember before I had kids, my first job as an attorney, there was another attorney who was slightly older than I was, but he had, he had three kids and they were young they were, you know, three boys and they were under the age of six. And I remember we were trying to find a time to get together after work just to, you know, he was obviously at home with his family and I'm like, you know, hey, let's just meet for coffee and, you know, you can bring your kids. And he looked at me and he, <laughs> yeah. he shook his head and he said, you are so naive. <laughs> and he was yeah, right. right. He was right. Well, this may be a tough question for you given where you work, but obviously, you know, you've had multiple, you know, kind of working opportunities while you've had kids. But what would you say were supports that you think parents should have coming up behind you, things that could be better or different? That's a good question. I mean, again, I think a lot of that does come down to the individual manager. And I think there are just some cultures that are created on teams that are a lot less forgiving, you know, night and, and, and weekend. You know, and part of this is like, I remember when I first started at Google.org, I was one of the only people on the team with kids. And I would rush out at 520 to, to catch my ferry to get, you know, because the ferry only comes every 20 minutes or so. And so you're on this sort of strict schedule. And I was all, I would tell my wife, I'm always the first person to leave the office like every day that I leave at 520 I know sometimes it'd be helpful for me to come home earlier but every single day I leave that office I am the first person to leave I mean I'm also the, oftentimes the last person to get there because I got to do school drop-offs and it just you know like the culture around that I was really self-conscious and then you know in the last six years that I've been here you know four different people on the team have had kids and now at five o'clock there's a rush out the door of all the parents going to pick up kids and relieve the nannies. And, you know, so even just like the culture that's created around sort of acknowledging that there are working parents and, you know, we're all going to work hard and we're going to get our work done and we're going to put the effort in. But the fact that there's, you know, that it's not, you know, a bad thing for us to go pick our kids up from school, you know, at five o'clock, I think is really important. I'm trying to think whether there's macro structural things. I mean, there might be at the macro level, more support around remote work arrangements and sort of like work from home arrangements. I mean, that can be tremendously beneficial, especially in a place like the Bay Area where commutes typically are like 90 plus minutes each day. You know, the ability to and I know that's a struggle. I've struggled with people I manage on my team too, to figure out the right balance of what, you know, is a little bit individual to the person and whether they can be productive in that arrangement. But I do think the more that we can allow people sort of the work from home arrangements really does. And my team's been great about some flexibility there, especially after you've demonstrated that you can be productive in that arrangement to, you know, I typically work from Oakland on Fridays, for instance, as long as I don't have an important meeting to get at the office too. And it makes all the difference to cut out the you know two plus hours of commuting and also I'm just less stressed and I can be more present for my kids when they get home so if I had to choose maybe a macro policy I think the you know the flexible work arrangement would be would probably be something I'd love to see companies continuing to figure out how to make that work for everybody. Yeah, no, I think that's a great insight. And it occurs to me, I'm glad we can at least complain about our weather out here because with you guys, we can't really complain about traffic or housing prices. You, you, know, you, guys, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you guys are one of the few people that's got his feet on that. <laughs> all right, all right, Justin. Brian, let me turn to you and ask you the same question. You know, what supports did you find particularly helpful, again, at any stage in your career uh, as you became a working parent? The story that I think really rings true for me in feeling supported And then I certainly want to spend a few seconds echoing a few things and then sharing a couple of other insights that I've seen box embody that even as a very young company, 
in terms of the average employee at Box that the enlightenment that the leadership and benefits team have applied to expecting parents or new parents is really noteworthy. But the story that is worth sharing relates to one of those benefits. At Box, the, the ability for a new parent to have significant paternity or maternity time, and then also you know, on top of that, another 12 weeks of bonding time is also permitted. And I thought just as, as a pretty admittedly workaholic type person, I work very flexible schedules and run around to soccer games and preschool pickups and that sort of thing, even during the weeks, often if I'm not traveling or in meetings, but, but then find the time to somehow do five people's jobs at the other hours as well when people are asleep and so on. But this notion of eight weeks of pregnancy leave, which you know, I wasn't pregnant, so it didn't apply to me, but the bonding leave for 12 weeks, the policy changed, believe it or not, when my baby Grayson, who's now two and a half, was being born. And so my wife, Amanda, had Gray, and he really had a tough time coming into the world. With my daughter, kind of the same, but it wasn't really an ICU type situation with Grayson. He had three or four days where it was touch and go. Wow. Organs were out of place, right? And, and I was just over his bedside holding his hand from the first second he emerged from that emergency C-section, you know, all the way through those that first week when, again, there were 60 things wrong with that kid when he started. Yeah. And then just slowly, we started seeing the reds turn yellow and the yellows turn greens on all the, you know, the pediatricians and the emergency physicians little screens on the computers in the hospital. So it was amazing to see those things all turn green by the time we got out of there and he left a well baby. But when he left, crazy thing was, I thought, wow, that was literally like the hardest thing ever. And my wife certainly was touch and go a little bit too. But then six weeks later, Amanda took ill with sepsis as well. Just a healthy mid thirties, you know, former gymnast, organic eating yogi girl. My wife got struck by sepsis and had an infection run rampant through her body. A couple of days before I had to rush her to the hospital. Work sent me an email during bonding time and said, hey, good news. We've just doubled the benefit. Instead of you know six weeks or eight weeks, you actually get 12 or more if you want to take them. And just immediately, we were on our way to Tahoe. And I said, yes, I'll take it. And then I kid you not, just three days later is when I was then rushing my wife to the hospital for a life-saving event, which again was sepsis. And, and that's kind of a little known thing. So thank goodness that Many of the great employers here in the Bay Area, Google included, are liberal in these policies that support that bonding time. It was needed for me both to recover a little bit from the trauma of Grayson's challenges, but then when his mom was on the one-yard line and we almost lost her as well, thank goodness we had that schedule because I could come back with some mental wellness to a really rigorous schedule, you know, after 12 weeks or 14 weeks instead of uh, just a couple weeks. So I'll say that was a story where I saw my employer completely have my back. And then just, yeah, the flexibility of us doing our work from wherever we are in the world with our family or with the other needs that we have for work by way of these digital connection tools, be they Google and Slack and Zoom and Box and all these things. Like I feel again, like I get three executives amount of work completed, but do it in really creative places at creative times. Uh, yeah. And that, wow, that's just such a powerful story. I mean, first of all, thank goodness, right? I mean, that it turned out the way it did. And I can't really just can't imagine what that must be like to go through. I mean, it's hard enough when it's a, you know, an uneventful pregnancy that I just can't. Tom, it was yeah. wild to have an employer not only create a space of safety that's so real and you can just feel it from the founder of Box Down. He's been leading this business for now 14 years and he's just become a dad in the last six to 12 months. So it's really fun to see the culture as we all, I am happen to be one of the older employees, it turns out, but as the employees do now emerge on that phase of life where they're able to, even though it's really hard, like you'd said, to afford the Bay Area and settle down with the family, there's a lot of people that are turning toward that or other more senior professionals, our tenured professionals are 
starting to come into the culture. But for me to be able to share all those traumatic, you know, call it literally near-death experiences of my son and my wife with my employer and have them be so incredibly receptive and responsive from the founder down, you know, even as a big multi-billion dollar company with thousands of employees, it was amazing to have that personal touch. And Vox certainly has turned on Clio right? A really neat service that helps folks that are battling what Justin was talking about in those very early days. And you too, Tom, Clio is a really neat provider of those expecting and new parent services and things like that. So it's just really neat to see even, you know, small employers compared to Google really stepping forward and and having big companies like Google make the big sacrifice that they make for their culture at companies that, you know, the size of Box, more in the mid-size category. That's fantastic. And some really good insight. And it's, I'm glad you shared that story because I think, you know, of course, intellectually, people understand the important, most people, the importance of leave, particularly paid leave. But, you know, those kinds of stories reveal why it is so important. I mean, can you imagine as with a lot of people, you know, if you were going through all of that and wondering if you're going to have a job at the end of it. I mean, it's just, I just can't, I can't imagine that for employers. I mean, you walk into box and you're immediately exposed to a, you know, to an on-site mother's room. You've got literally breast milk shipping services. You've got fertility assistance. I mean, I just popped open the page here on our intranet or whatever you call it, our service hub or whatever. And it's just, you know, it's just amazing that there is so much even a, the employee resource groups, I think that may even be what got Justin and, on, and I on this call is, a, is Gap Inc.'s version of what we call FAB, Families at Box. It's literally an employee resource group. It's like a parental network where people are sharing supplies and hand-me-downs and getting each other through the hard times and, and all of this. So all kinds of, even Chairman Mom, you know, pops in here. Just again, for like even working women who are trying to solve problems can go into the Chairman Mom app and and get feedback in a private way. So it's just amazing to see Silicon Valley employers who do work everybody pretty hard, but really step up for human need and human wellness. Well, I mean, it's really exciting to talk to both of you and, you know, what the possible is, because yes. as you mentioned, I mean, these are not small companies. These are not, I mean, these are hard driving companies and yet they are at the forefront of offering really what should be kind of standard, I mean, best practices, leave and other support. And it's just, you know, compared to, you know, even other folks that we've had on this program and most of us come from fairly privileged backgrounds and it's just not even close to what you were both describing, which which makes this question, fortunately, maybe a little harder one for you. But again, I'll ask the same one I asked Justin. Are there things uh, within your company, within the industry that you think could supports that you did not have that could be helpful for people coming up behind you? I'm trying to think right now. I'm always really quick to point out, you know, and be a squeaky wheel and point out gaps and things that I really, you know, see as necessary. But because I've been around such a healthy, flexible environment when it comes to box kind of, again, like Justin was saying, once you've earned, you know, a right to have some of that flexibility, his work at home Fridays, my work at home a couple of days in the suburbs north of the city versus east of the city. It's, I really, I got to tell you again, I'm quick to call stuff out when I see it, but I don't see things that I would want changed both in the CSR industry as I see it right now. And frankly, I'm seeing even a little bit of a gender balancing and more parents and more folks. Even just yesterday, I was at a lunch among our peers, and many of Justin and I's peers were there. It was at, at Risman's office at, at IDEO, where CSR folks get together. There's probably 20 of us there. And sure enough, there was a couple of folks that were just coming back in after four or five months 
of expanding their families. And it was just really neat to immediately celebrate that and embrace that and have the conversation go around the room where it wasn't, again, it wasn't kind of an off limits topic. It was actually really celebrated, even though everybody there was really wanting to, to kind of hear what everybody's strategic plan was for the year across 10 or 15 different companies and collaborate, you know, with a good level of Silicon Valley intensity. But man, I can't think of a change right now. That's such a cop out, but I just can't, no, that's, I, I tell hey. you. That's great. I mean, I'm thrilled to have you both sort of struggle in a way to answer this question because a lot of folks we have on this program, it's, you know. Even even the flexible spending accounts, right, for non-health things. I mean, I'm just working that out right now because we've got our little two-year-old now, like I'd said, down at a preschool. And it's like, all right, well, I'm going to file a claim and pay for that pre-tax, you know, with pre-tax money. So it's just amazing that even some of the financial aspects of this crazy parenting game are supported by our employers out here. Maybe it's just the progressive Californians in us, but I approach this, you know, in a way that through firsthand experience has been very helpful. I couldn't do the really intense job. I know I make it this intense, but I am this way. And if my employer didn't completely have my back as a dad, because that, you know, a dad, husband, and a healthy person are my first priorities. And then, you know, creating successful social enterprises is, is a close second, but, but definitely second. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Brian and Justin, thanks so much for sharing those insights. And Laura, sure. I'll pass the baton back to you. Oh, I'm deeply grateful of the inspiring Silicon Valley companies for blazing the trail and setting the standard Mm. for what it means to Mm -hmm. offer really meaningful benefits to parents. And I know it's a fantastic retention tool as well. So thinking about the corporate impact field again, what changes or trends do you see happening in social impact that you think might be having an impact on working parents, even if these changes or trends really aren't specifically directed or targeted at people who are parents? I don't know. Have you all read this book, Meritocracy Trap? Have you heard of this book? It came out in September. I've heard uh, of it, it was, but I haven't read it. Yeah, so Daniel Markowitz, who's a, a Yale Law School professor, delivered a commencement speech a couple of years ago that kind of did the broad outlines, and then he followed up with this book, and I read it a couple months ago, and it's really stuck with me. And, you know, Brian actually alluded to some of the principles behind it. You know, this sort of hard-charging Silicon Valley culture and the fact that he's sort of leveraged in such a way that he can do sort of the work of three executives. And I feel the same way. Like I sometimes feel like I am just wired and supported in a way at Google that I'm like a productivity machine and I can do the work that multiple people would probably have done in the past at a traditional company. And the meritocracy trap talks about how it's not necessarily good for any of us that the sort of middle classes have a really hard time with mobility because those of us who have kind of like working up through elite educational institutions and kind of gotten into elite employers are sort of sitting on those opportunities. And we're also then investing in our own kids' education to get the same kind of meritocratic badges that they need to be able to travel the same paths. And those pathways are quite expensive, you know, to finance. And so there's that piece of it. But there's also the piece, not that anybody should really feel sorry for us, those of us who are privileged enough to work in these jobs, but there is a sense in which that meritocracy trap kind of ensnares us as well. And that, you know, we spend so much time with this like kind of crushing intensity of 
love our work. And I think Brian and I both like to nerd out and work super hard and push ourselves super hard. So it's, it's some of that is our personalities and just the way that we're sort of wired. But I do think that it results in this situation where you've got this sort of managerial class of folks at the top of these companies who are highly compensated, but also doing the work that would be multiple people's jobs in the past. And that both deprives other people of opportunity from there being more jobs, but it also, you know, makes it so that the folks who are in these jobs were just like super wired and on all the time and trying to be so, so highly productive. And I think that makes it really challenging to figure out how to devote the kind of time, attention, care, intentionality that it takes to, you know, invest in a family and raise kids and make sure that they're developing well. It also puts a lot of pressure on, you know, I'll just speak for myself. Like I am at this decision point with my fifth grader about what to do with middle school. And I mentioned we're in Oakland public schools and our local neighborhood school has been fantastic, but the middle school in Oakland are notoriously challenging and I think they're getting better but this question of like do I send my fifth grader to a private middle school in order to start to get on the meritocratic sort of journey that it would take for her to maybe work at Google one day because realistically like there's a certain pathway most people need to take to be able to get here and the kind of pressure that puts on her the kind of pressure it puts on me to keep earning enough money to make those channels possible I've just been thinking a lot about that lately and And I don't know that it's necessarily like a change that's been happening very recently. I just think it's this trajectory that we've kind of been on as a society. I mean, if you think 50 years ago, the fact that, you know, the badge of privilege was not working at all, being like a leisure class. And, you know, that was what it meant to be elite. And these days to be elite means to be working like 70 or 80 hours a week. Like the badge of honor is that I deserve this because I worked so hard with such intensity. And I've just been thinking a lot about sort of the trap that that presents for everybody in society and particularly what it does for those of us working in these positions from a family perspective, the pressure it puts on our kids, but the pressure it also puts on our time, you know, and our emotional energy. I mean, how much emotional energy do we have left at the end of the day to be able to invest in our families when we've been locked and loaded so intensely during our work days? Yeah, I agree with what Justin was saying there. I had my wife reference to me in in kind of a quieter moment that we had over the weekend. She'd said, hey, you know, it is really tough to compete with your phone. And she just had to be really clear with me that she felt like she was competing with the phone. She's been in a role after a really hard driving career in technology for about 15 years, leading amazing teams at amazing companies, and now embarking on a 15 to 20 client executive coaching path, especially with some of the sort of wake up call moments that she had nearly losing her life a couple of years back. And so to see her coaching executives now about the things Justin was just speaking to, and frankly, making a suitable living doing that with an even more flexible schedule has been remarkable. But now she's also really tuned in to where the deficits are of my attention and the deficits are in my living with intention and presence. And so I would say that in the same way that the meritocratic trap and environment that Justin's book reference was speaking to, I think the notion of, and get this, and Justin slapped me down if I'm wrong on this, but the embedded social enterprise or kind of this new generation of CSR is so proximitous to the core engines of these companies that instead of being 
kind of a part-time personality that's out writing a grant or two on the side as kind of a make good or kind of a, a side venture for companies earlier. And again, again, it's our doing, but earlier and earlier companies are having to find ways to sustain a positive social impact, be it through their products or their time or their energy or their grant making dollars, if they can find a mechanism to have philanthropy profit or philanthropy IPO. And that has everybody so damn wired me included, right? The strategy is real between the traditional stuff that was burning out the business types and now the CSR types, instead of just burning out because they're fighting for, you know, the, the partners that they represent or the sort of grantees that they're out there fighting for. Now it's like literally on a daily basis, I'm worried about the same issues that my CEO is worried about as well as my CSR issues every day of the week. And that that can be hard. Which strikes me as like a positive thing in general, right? It's this double-edged sword. Like it's good. I would think that these corporate social missions are that close to the leadership's heart, right? Down on that. But and now I'm, now I can I'm see getting, how you're the bearing the brunt of that. Right. Yes. And now you're it's the Icarus story or whatever it is, right? You're getting three or four texts a day or a week from the folks with the most influence, literally in somewhat the economy. <laughs> These yeah. days, data is the new gold and this and that. And so I can only imagine when Justin's very senior executives are, are in his phone, <laughs> right. you know, on a regular basis because they're so plugged in. And what that says to me is we've helped CSR arrive as being mission critical to these organizations. But now you have organizations like Box who see what Justin and his team in a phenomenally well-resourced and phenomenally charitable and phenomenally enlightened business is accomplishing for social impact. And now all of us that are really scrappy and mid-size and kind of trying to figure out where we honor our sister and brethren in these larger entities with more resource to do good, that we're trying to do the same thing you know, even if there's the decimal places moved or there's less zeros behind the grants, it's fascinating, but that's a trend that I think bears mentioning. That's a great point, Brian. I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, six years ago when I joined Google.org, I do think we were more of a sort of a happy appendage sort of at the periphery of the company. And I think intentionally so, some executives sort of protecting Google.org as a sort of a separate space for us to just go out and do sort of charitable work in the world without regard to what's happening in the core business. And that's very much changed. We are right at the center. I'm thinking about all of the most important issues that the company is up against, whether that's privacy or online safety or, you know, how do we, you know, digital skills training and the future of work and automation. I mean, it's the future of AI and the social impact of AI and the, you know, ethics around AI. I mean, I'm thinking about all of those things because the company wants Google.org to be a part of the narrative and the story and the solutions to all of those challenges and the opportunities. And, you know, yeah, with great responsibility comes a lot of pressure and a lot of scrutiny. And so our budget has continued to just kind of grow exponentially as we've gotten closer and closer to the core center of the company. But to Brian's point, yeah, all those executives are in your phone and in your inbox and, you know, you you're in all the important meetings and you're sort of right at the center of it. And that does bring that kind of intense pressure and scrutiny, you know, so a bit of a trade-off. That's a great trend to point out, Brian. Yeah. Throughout our conversations on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the pressures of the always on culture, which we've seen when we've interviewed folks who are lawyers and physicians and people in the performing arts. And it's interesting to see all the myriad ways that always on culture presents itself and all the different reasons for it that sort of push so many leaders in so many different industries 
to have the, the leaders attach to their phone all the time. I want to turn it back over to Tom now for some of our final questions for our guest today. Yes, thanks, Lori. And, you know, one thing that that made me think about just that whole conversation is, you know, we recognize a lot of us do the imposition, you know, the double-edged sword nature of technology and being able to kind of fit work in where, you know, in the interstitial spaces of life, but then you can fit work in in places where you should, not, you know, you should be paying attention to your family. And it just occurred to me as hearing you guys speak that it's not always work imposing upon us. It's sometimes it's exciting. Exciting, right? I mean, it's, you're working on something that's fun and it's important and it's integral to something that the company has going on. And, you know, let's face it, there's a love our families, but there's a certain amount of banality, you know, in getting dinner on the table. And it can be, again, this is no mystery, but addictive to want to, you know, to jump back into that exciting conversation, particularly when you feel like, you know, hey, my role is so important and I need to weigh in here right now. And that's so it just makes me think about how it's not just work opposing upon me. It's me often choosing to dive back into that conversation just because I can, because I have my phone right there. That's right. No doubt about it, Tom. You're right. And, and frankly, I was like 45 minutes into a phone bender like six nights ago. And I literally got a pop-up ad in one of my social feeds. That was a little device where you could lock your phone in there and it wouldn't let you have your phone back for two hours or something, right? You could set the time. It was literally like for phone addiction. And so I'm not saying this call needs to go down the phone addiction road. But I think that was symbolic of the notion that when your job, like it is for Justin and me, it, it's our calling. It's not just our career. Like we know we're positively affecting millions of lives and that's addicting, but it's, that pales in comparison to how joyful I am when I see my little boy, or frankly, even by, by I get secondhand high from seeing Justin and his lovely wife and three daughters, you know, on social media too. It's like, we're all addicted to our families. It just so happens that our jobs are callings. That's, uh, that's part of why we've been put on this earth. And so it's a blessing, but it is something that requires real intention, real strategy and barrier setting as well. So back over to you. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, I've taken to sometimes just taking my phone and that's a great idea to have kind of a locked box, but like just putting it in a drawer, you know, just not even, you know, just like in the kitchen, you know, just so it's not in my pocket. It's not, you know, it's like Pavlovian, you know, just having it there. Like if I, my hand touches it, you know, I'm, it's hard for me just not to absentmindedly, you know, flip it over and look at Slack and see what people are saying, you know, and I, and as much as there is this banality sometimes to childcare, you know, I, you know, somebody talked to me about this the other day and it really kind of hit home to me. Like, you know, we, for our children, we remember a lot of the firsts, right? If we're lucky enough to be around and see them, you know, the first time they walk and you know, those kinds of things. But, you know, we don't remember the, we don't know when the lasts are coming, you know, like my boys, you know, now are, you know, older, 11 and 14. And of course I don't bathe them anymore. So at some point, and I have no idea when it was, there was the last time that I ever gave them a That's bath. Right. And it occurred to me, you know, when I, when I'm like, you know, it was sort of a sad thought. And I'm like, you know what? I hope I wasn't on my phone. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I saw my little two-year-old pick up his little Fisher Price phone the other day and he held it in his hand the same way that I'd been holding the phone in my hand when I came up the stairs to grab my coffee two mornings ago. And I just ran my phone out of the room. I was like, wow, he already says, mm. yeah. he says, quote unquote, daddy tight pewter and make phone calls. That's what he calls daddy's <laughs> work. <laughs> right, right. Tight pewter and make calls. Literally, he says, Daddy, <laughs> type Peter and make phone calls. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. 
No, it's, it's bad. Tough stuff. It's good, well, bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but let me actually move on to, it's been a great conversation. Let me move on to my closing question and uh, we'll start with you, Justin. And that is, maybe it'll segue into what we've been talking about. What is your number one piece of advice to a, you would give to either your younger self becoming a, a working parent or somebody that you might know who's for the first time becoming a working parent, parent who has a, you know, has a job, you know, you know what I mean? All parents work, but you know, it's trying to balance the, you know, those two. Yeah, I would borrow from a book that I read many years ago before I became a parent by Laura Nash and Howard Stevenson called Just Enough. And the whole premise of the book is around figuring out when to say just enough. And they did this sort of wide-reaching study of folks who have been sort of quote-unquote successful, and they were kind of trying to map all the different elements of their success and what made them feel success. But these were folks who were also sort of holistically successful, and they found that there were these four categories of sort of distinct sort of goal achievement and flourishing and one was happiness one was achievement one was significance and one was legacy and they said that you know at any given moment like you sort of have to choose how to stake your investments across those four different things and you have to be okay with they, they call these like wince moments where you realize like I could have invested even more in achievement now somebody I'm watching somebody go out and achieve something important then I realized I probably could be achieving that same thing. And I have this moment where I wince to myself, like, oh, that could have been me. But I chose to invest that in some moments of happiness with my kids. Or I chose to invest that in you know, sort of building significance in people's lives that I care about. And that's really stuck with me. Like, when to say enough? We live in this, like, maximizing culture where we're always sort of on with that sort of intensity. And my personality is definitely given towards that. Like I like to nerd out and go deep on things with lots of energy and and sort of maximize things. And yet, like, sometimes it's important to sort of recognize when I've invested enough in one of those categories or when I've started to turn something that should be a happy moment into an achievement. I mean, my wife's birthday is today. And last night I was like, I'm going to make my wife this very ambitious, like, 12-layer lasagna that I saw posted on the chef's website. And, uh, you know, I was literally, I probably spent six hours last night, you know, making my own pasta noodles and running it through the, you know, the pasta machine and making my own like sauces and everything and, and it, I started the process very happy and sort of this is fun and I enjoy cooking and doing these things and then you know, six hours in it's turned into more of an achievement thing like uh, I have to like tackle this lasagna and kill it so that I <laughs> you know that my wife is super you know and so it's, just, it's also about like how do I make sure that I'm not turning everything in my life into the achievement category that's okay to just do some things at the moment and be happy or to, to invest in my kids and build a legacy for them or invest in communities that I care about and not just maximizing on every category. And then being okay with the fact that that means that I'm not going to be as advanced in all of those things as maybe some people who are choosing to try to maximize in one. And I think I was blessed to read that book before I had kids. My wife and I like hosted a Bible study where we sort of anchored it, uh, even though this is a secular book, like on discussion around those principles because it was just so kind of formative to us as we embarked in marriage and embarked in starting a family, like how to remind ourselves not to, to maximize just on one thing, but really spread ourselves out across many things so we can get that full sort of flourishing. No, that's fantastic. I took good notes there, Justin. 
That was a good one. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, to check out that book. And actually, um, you got a twofer in because my next question was going to be, is there a book or article that you would recommend? That's it. You hit it. So the last question for you, Justin, is, and you know, uh, kind of realizing the danger of it, giving our previous conversation, but is there a piece of technology? Is there an app? I can even be just, you know, paper and pencil on a calendar that you have found really integral to helping you as a working parent. Oh, you know, I've got lots of Google endorsements for technology. (laughs) (laughs) I could go on and on. I mean, you know, very quickly, like Google Calendar, I think we, I don't know if my wife and I could live without it. I'll second that. You know, we have the family calendar. I think maybe the one app that less people are probably familiar with if if folks are, because I know a lot of folks in our demographic are on iPhones, but the family link app for Android, I have just found to be so critical to managing my kids' device use. We're we're completely an Android family given that I work at Google and the, the family link app allows me to set specific time limits on every device that my kids use from their Chromebook to the tablet to phones and it also allows me to control every app that they download so that it requests permission through the app for any app downloads that they're trying to do. It allows me to put restrictions on their YouTube content, explicit lyrics on music, like all these things and it's really allowed me to be get comfortable giving my kids devices so I don't have to be so draconian and be like no you know you can't have a phone you can't have a tablet like you can't you know no screen time which you know because I want to limit it and I want my kids to live in a safe ecosystem around it and sometimes when my kids are out of control like they were last weekend when they're just like wilding out and screaming and yelling and all at their worst it allows me to just take it all away I just literally went into my family link app and I was like you guys lost your devices for this entire week and I just for every one of them i just said you know zero minutes on the devices they can't they literally can't get into their apps i mean they open the phone it says time out you know and so i know a lot of us really struggle with how much to expose our kids to technology and how much to let them use it and that app has really been critical and make me feel comfortable in putting devices in my kids hands knowing they're not going to abuse it, you know, get themselves into dangerous situations through social media because I don't let them have any social media apps and to be able to control the time and the days that they get to use it. Yeah, well, that's, I had had no idea and that's fantastic. You know, I, as an iPhone user, you know, there are some controls that we can put on our kids' phones and their devices, but it's surprisingly, I find, I mean, maybe I'm just not up to date on how to exactly use it, but clumsy, it doesn't allow that kind of finesse that you have. And, you know, my wife and I were talking about this the other night. I'm like, isn't there something we can put, particularly my 14-year-old's phone, where we can just like turn it off, you know, and I'm sure there are other apps we can use, but, you know, like limiting his time is not, (laughs) we need exactly what you just said, you know, yes. we've, asked you, we've asked you three times to clear your dinner plates and you're <laughs> That's right. on your phone, <laughs> click, you're done. Click, uh, you're done, exactly. Yeah, he would, that would get his attention real quick. So that's interesting to know. Well, I appreciate that, Justin. All right, Brian, sure. I will turn it over to you for the same question. What is your number one piece of advice for a new working parent or what you might tell your younger self as you became a working parent? Well, I'll tell you, I had the chance to have Maya with her mom 14 years ago, and then a chance to have Grayson with Amanda here two and a half years ago. And I'll tell you, I'm a lot more relaxed with this one the second time around. I know I'm an older, wiser person, so to speak, but I but I would say I wished I'd been a little less, you know, paranoid about, you know, everything. I think that's probably common for your first child. But also would say that, but the advice for folks that are going to embark on the journey is the same advice that I have for everyone that's trying to experience optimal living, something that I've just always referred to as being or belief energy. 
And it's getting a sound awareness for yourself through reflection and perhaps even some other dialoguing or other mindfulness practices, but what are your values and get a sense for the values. And if your values are to to prioritize dinner with family every night, then you're going to do it. And then that's just going to be a value that you live by. And then second is the realm uh, for living optimally of community and the different social relationships that you keep. And ideally, those are relationships that foster those values are able to inform those values. And the third category for me that I, I would have anyone prioritize their life around is their capacity. And that can be their mental, physical, spiritual health, their willingness to keep a growth mindset and grow, but it's just capacity in general. And then finally, fourth is the, the life area of impact. And you often have people think about, and young professionals especially, are so ready to go out and overachieve that they're thinking about impact or the commission checks or the grant sizes that they're going to create or the social structures they're going to design in their programs that for their startup nonprofit or whatever. And if you don't think about the values, the community or the capacity for yourself, you know, then starting with impact is just going to fall flat because you're not going to have those other bases covered. So with my buddy, Justin pointing out those awesome happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy, I thought I would bring forward the categories of life that I always assess in my quiet moments with my journal values, community, capacity, and impact. And then I would say, The gimmick for families that's been incredibly helpful for our family, we actually borrowed it from the Obamas, and it's at dinner time having the rose thorn and rosebud uh, conversation. It tends to be, you know, the rose is something that you're really grateful for the day. The thorn is something that challenged you, and the bud is something you're looking forward to. That's great. And it's so nice, man. My 14-year-old just lights her up. She still talks about what was good, bad, and what she's looking forward to even the little tiny guy that is in our household every night before we can kind of break into our food, all of us hold hands, whether it's three of us or 20 of us, I swear to God, we hold hands around the table and we just look at each other and we just take a deep breath and we say, I love you. And then we eat our food. So it's really nice to have the rose thorn and rosebud again, borrowed it from the Obamas at the dinner conversation and then kind of taking us home here. I would say that the life 360 app on the phone, which is probably device agnostic is great. Yeah for my wife and my daughter and our nanny and I just so that we're sending a lot less texts to figure out where everybody is. And so just cuts down on the logistical drag, but it also just means, okay, I know Maya's still at practice. I better get my butt up there to pick her up because she couldn't get the ride if her little head is still bouncing around up at her high school, which is 15 miles away. So right. Life360 is the app. That's my tip for that. And certainly we die without the Google Calendar too. So props to Justin and his team to keep that. <laughs> One last question for you, Brian. What about a book or an article that you found particularly impactful? I don't know that that any of those are jumping out at me right now. I think the book that's been really, my wife is kind of on a bender right now. She's got like 50 leadership books floating around our house. So I've been picking those up. But the one I'm reading right now is Clayton Christensen, How Will You Measure Your Life? And I think yes. it's better than that for, for, hey, let's measure the right stuff so we live the right way. And it's it's fantastic. Fantastic book. Great book. Got to have the right KPIs, right? There you have it. They're not just that impact bucket, right? They should be aligned with those values, your community and the capacity to go out and be your best self. So this has been a fun call. Did you, uh, Lori and Tom, did you get out of it what you were hoping for your audiences? Yeah. And I'm going to turn it back over to Lori. So she's going to bring us home, but I'm just going to, since it'll be the last that I talk, thank you, Justin and Brian for joining us. And Lori, I'll let you take it over. Yeah. Thank you so much, Justin and Brian. This has been a really wonderful and rich conversation. And To you, Tom, and all iPhone users out there, someone recently taught me how to find those family controls on my own iPhone. Mm -hmm. So 
all you have to do is go into settings and then go down to the uh, area marked screen time and then scroll down and there's a thing that says set up screen time for family. And that's where you can turn those lovely devices on and off and set timers on them and that sort of stuff. So okay. I haven't played around with it too much yet, but someone did just identify the location of it for me. So Excellent. I'm grateful Thank for that. Yes. <laughs> I just walked with you on my phone for that, Lori. So thanks a lot. That's sure. helpful. Sure. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> that's what this whole uh, helping other working parents and parents in general thing is about. We're really, really grateful to you for the conversation today. And we hope that everyone enjoyed listening to both uh, working moms and working dads and corporate social responsibility and that you'll join us next month when we get to talk to some working moms and working dads in the mental health space. They have some really amazing reflections on being both a working parent and being someone who helps the community's mental health. If you liked and enjoyed our podcast, we'd encourage you to please share it with one friend. And also, please go ahead and leave us a review wherever one leaves reviews on apps these days. Just a quick sentence or two would be so helpful in helping get the good word out. Thanks again for joining us and be well until next time. 